Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. We often think of of spies during the revolution as these fiercely ideological and and noble patriots, but we rarely think of those who were forced um, into this very dangerous world. That's Charles Dewey. He talks about the dangers of espionage in the American Revolution and about a little-known double agent. He's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by Henry Holt and Company, publishers of the new book, The British Are Coming, The War for America, Lexington to Princeton, by Rick Atkinson. Available now. Hello everyone, welcome back. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing espionage, spying, with Charles Dewey. And we're going to talk about, specifically, how intelligence gathering, spying, and even the potential for becoming a double agent uh, existed in plentiful abundance in the American Revolutionary period. We talk a lot about spies in the 21st century, way more than I thought we ever would. Uh, since the 2016 election, uh, we have seen uh, literally dozens of Russian agents arrested and indicted by the U.S. federal government. Uh, and it's very shocking. By the way, we've also seen Chinese agents as well. Uh, and it's very shocking to know that there are still spies amongst us. I mean, you literally have still Americans being arrested and thrown in jail for seemingly working against their country to benefit another. This is nothing new. Of course, uh, from the Cold War, America and the Soviet Union have become masters of spying on each other. So much so that anymore, uh, we don't even typically arrest spies. We just identify them and we sort of use them uh, through surveillance techniques, things like that, to kind of get a better idea of what the other side is doing. It's really become a major part of the international community. But we don't often think about spying in the context of the American Revolution. When I think about spies, I think about James Bond and a pen that, you know, turns into a can opener or something crazy. Uh, But those means weren't available in the 18th century. So they had to rely on other resources. And these are the kind of things we'll talk about tonight with Charles Dewey. But what makes a spy? When you study the art of espionage, and again, the Cold War has made the Americans and and the former Soviets, now the Russians, masters of this. There are certain elements that make a good spy. And as Americans in our intelligence community, uh, we've identified that in an acronym using four letters. And the acronym is MICE. M-I-C-E. The first way that you entice someone to become a spy, and the easiest, quite frankly, is with money. If you look at the history of the Cold War, even the history of the American Revolution, you'll see a lot of very important people were swayed based on some monetary reward. Um, 
That's M. Now, I is based on ideology. Uh, that is, if they can't persuade you with money, maybe you can be persuaded based on a common belief or a common interest. In the case of the Soviet Union, it would have been communism. In the case of the American Revolution, it would have been loyalism. C, compromising material. That is to say, even if you don't want a foreign government's money, even if you don't believe in what they believe in, maybe they have some blackmail on you, maybe they have some dirt on you, and they say, if you don't do what we say, we will release this to the public. Difficult situation to be in, and many spies find themselves trapped in that way. And the fourth and final element, E, ego. They stroke your ego. They say how wonderful you are, how smart you are, how you're not appreciated by your own country, and of course, they appreciate you fully. Mice, M-I-C-E. Money, ideology, compromising material, and ego. That's how you make a spy. And again, this sort of science and understanding um, is sort of taught in Intelligence 101 today, and we learned that again over the last 60 or 70 years. But it's amazing that when you hear the story Charles Dewey is going to talk about tonight, it still applies even in the American Revolution. I mean, some things just work. So when you think of the game of spycraft, tonight we're going to meet a double agent, believe it or not. Don't rush to conclusions. Don't think you have it totally figured out. Because sometimes people become spies willingly, and other times they become spies to save themselves. At the end of the day, a spy is a spy. But again, I often say, in history, there's very little black and white. It's often a gray area. And as historians, we have to live in that gray area. So without further ado, sit back, relax, get your can opener pens ready for our interview with Charles Dewey. Charles Dewey, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Tell us about your background. Um, well, I, I grew up and I, I still li live right next to the, the Palisades in New Jersey, um, only about a mile or two from where Cornwallis and the British Army scaled the cliffs on uh, November 20th, 1776 to, uh, to take Fort Lee. And um, I spent a lot of time at the local historic sites in uh, the Palisades Interstate Park Mission, places like Stony Point and uh, Fort Montgomery, West Point, uh, New Windsor Cantonment. So um, I was hooked on the, the history of the revolution from early on. Uh, I studied history at the Virginia Military Institute, and um, for my thesis, I worked with an excellent professor of um, colonial history, and I, I, I enjoyed the research process so much I knew I wanted to pursue history as a career after I graduated, but as um, unfortunately, it, it's, it's really tough to um, be able to work in, uh, in history without an advanced degree right out of college, but I was uh, really fortunate there was a, um, an opening for a historical interpreter job at Fort Lee Historic Park, and um, I was ha fortunate enough to get the, the job and been there for just about a year now. What first drew your interest into this topic? Um, well, uh, everyone loves a, a good spy story. Uh, I was always kind of interested um, in the, the topic, you know, through popular history, um, TV shows and and books, but uh, well, when I when I graduated from college, I actually commissioned as an intelligence officer in the United States Army National Guard, and uh, so I do that in addition to my job at Fort Lee. And um, most of my research tends to focus around both of those things: um, 
and that's uh, what drew me to do more research about uh, Major Alexander Klo. Uh, he's the intelligence officer I wrote about in my first article for the Journal of the American Revolution. And, uh, for example, in order to attain some intelligence of uh, British ships in the Hudson River, Washington tells Klo that Fort Lee provides an excellent vantage point of the river, and uh, he instructs him to keep one of his dragoons in the area so he could receive um, constant reports on British shipping. Caleb Bruin fits in nicely to both of these interests as well because he spent some time at Fort Lee and uh, he even helped build some of the fortifications there in the, the fall of 1776 before the famous retreat across New Jersey. And um, eventually he served as a spy for the Continental Army. I think for a lot of us, whenever we think of the American Revolution and spies, uh, we might get sort of a kind of a dark spot in our collective understanding. Maybe we think of like James Bond or, you know, small pens that turn into explosive devices. Uh, so what was, you know, for you, uh, in your opinion, what was spying like, espionage like in the American Revolution? Well, uh, I think in order to answer that, you really have to like discuss the role of uh, intelligence during the revolution. And um, I think that history has proven that almost any mission undertaken without proper knowledge of the enemy's disposition and intent um, tends to end poorly. Washington definitely understood this. And um, uh, at one point he wrote to General Elias Dayton that the necessity of procuring good intelligence is apparent and it need not be further urged. Unlike today or, you know, during the Cold War where you have advanced technology to help uh, obtain this information on the enemy um, in addition to human sources, Intelligence collection uh, during the revolution was done solely through the use of, of human assets. And what I mean by that is today where there's software to obtain communications from the enemy, um, what we would call signals intelligence. In the, the revolution, human actors were the ones who intercepted letters. And, um, another method was the use of highly skilled reconnaissance units, such as Knowlton's Rangers or the, the various light horse regiments like Baylor's Dragoons. But uh, even then, there were limits to what these units could accomplish on their own. Uh, so you have the other method of collecting intelligence, which was espionage. Going back to Major Close service as an intelligence officer, Washington instructs him to send inconspicuous men into New York City uh, under the uh, pretense of being merchants in order to gain uh, intelligence on British activity. But... By definition, these men undoubtedly were spies, and while they may have been able to collect accurate numbers of British forces and hear the local gossip, uh, as outsiders who would need to transit to and from their target area, they would never be able to relay uh, the sustained intelligence in the timely manner that Washington needed. Uh, the spy network created and controlled by uh, Major Benjamin Talmadge, the famous culper ring, was different and that the spies remained in the occupied territory and they transmitted their intelligence through couriers. Staying in place allowed them to build rapport with the British and um, it allowed them to observe everything in their neighborhood without any interruptions. As a whole, some of the best intelligence Washington obtained throughout the war came from his spies um, serving in these intelligence collection roles. The, uh, the culpa ring, for example, discovered the British plan to introduce counterfeit continental dollars into circulation, um, which would have been disastrous for the, the value of the currency. And uh, they also uncovered British plans to attack the French in Rhode Island, which would have crippled the new alliance before it had any effect on the war. The subject of your article uh, is a man named Caleb Bruin. Uh, tell us about him. Well, we, we truly don't know much about his earlier life. There's, there's very few sources 
um, on his, his career before the war. But we do know that at the time of the war uh, beginning in 1776, uh, he was 41 years old and uh, he was a resident of New York, New Jersey, and he had a family. Um, we can conclude that he, he sold rum, um, at least for uh, part of his business, and he was likely a carpenter or cabinet maker by trade. And um, he was probably held in some high regard in this capacity because he was given command of a, a company of artificers, um, what we would now consider an, an engineering unit. As trades were, were often passed down to, to children of the family, Bruin's son, uh, also named Caleb, was a cabinet maker in Newark for many years after the revolution. Records show that, uh, Bruins, um, that under Bruin's command, the company helped construct fortifications from Long Island all throughout Manhattan, Harlem, uh, Kingsbridge, and across the river at Fort Lee. And um, as the Continental Army retreated towards the Delaware River across New Jersey, so, so did the artificers. The British occupation of New Jersey, specifically Newark, is really important here. Um, so give us kind of a sense of the background of that occupation. Yeah. Um, so the British occupation of Newark wasn't quite the same uh, long drawn out occupation of a city in the way that the British occupied Philadelphia or, or New York, and they weren't really forced out um, by any sort of um, defeat. It was more or less a stopping point for the British army as it pursued uh, the continentals across New Jersey to the Delaware river um, in late 1776, the main body of the army was actually only there for about one week. And after they left, they deployed a, a rear unit. Um, I believe it was a Scottish regiment to remain in the city and, uh, control the city's inhabitants until after the battle of Trenton. How did the occupation change Bruin's life? Well, it, it, although it wasn't a very long occupation, we, we know that it was enough to force several Patriot families to flee the city. And that included Bruin's family. Um, as records show, Bruin did not continue to the Delaware River with the artificers, um, but he actually returned to Newark to care for his family. Um, in the brief time between the main body of the British Army's removal from the city and the arrival of the guard, Bruin uh, moved his family back into Newark. Um, unfortunately, the same day that Bruin resettled, um, he was <laughs> that was the day that the Scotch Regiment came into the city, and uh, he was forced to take what they called protection, um, which was a document that stated he was to be under the care of crown forces. Um, and this fits kind of like a new trend in revolutionary war historiography, um, known as fluid allegiance or fluid loyalism, um, in which people in occupied areas um, made themselves uh, appear to be loyal to whoever presented them with an immediate threat. Um, and this didn't come without consequences because uh, soon after the, he was able to return to his unit, um, and it, he attempted to retake command of it. Um, he found that his soldiers were so disgusted with his actions that he took protection that his command authority was completely eroded and he was forced to resign from the army. And he returned home. Several months later, uh, he was captured while returning from business in Massachusetts. Evidently, they thought he was still um, in the army. Uh, and he was captured by loyalists near Stralenburg in Bergen County, New Jersey, and then imprisoned in New York City. And... Um, because of that, that kind of set the conditions for his becoming an agent of espionage later in the war. How does Bruin become involved in the Patriot War effort next? What's his role there? Well, you have to go um, back a little bit further. So while he was imprisoned in, um, in the provost in New York City, 
um, they offer him the chance to, to be released under the condition that he would go to the Continental Army in New Jersey and collect intelligence on them. Uh, instead of doing that, when he returns home, he sends for the local Patriot commander, a uh, Major Samuel Hayes. Um, he, he comes to his house uh, and Bruin offers to be a double agent for the Continental Army. Knowing that, uh, that Bruin was just a prisoner of the, uh, of the British in New York, Hayes uh, called it a hazardous business. And uh, even though he liked the idea, he, he wouldn't approve of, of Bruin doing, um, doing what he suggested until uh, General Nathaniel Green also approved it. Uh, Hayes and another um, local figure, Dr. Alexander McWhorter, he was a, a minister who uh, it was rumored that George, uh, George Washington stayed at his house um, while in Newark. And at one point in the war, he served as the chaplain and general Henry Knox's artillery brigade. Uh, they brought Bruin to general green who, um, actually loved the idea. And from there on out, he acts as a double agent serving the Americans. This is really the good part. Could you kind of talk about, uh, his life as a double agent? Well, <laughs> his, um, his first mission given to him by general green, uh, was to report back to the British with a, a note containing false intelligence. Uh, Green himself wrote the false report. Um, so Bruin takes that note and he, he delivers it to the, the British New York City. And once again, he's in, in prison as they believe the note is too extravagant to be true. Um, they probably believed that he was just really bad at, at intelligence collection. Um, and he wrote just something down to prove that he was fulfilling his task and, you know, to not be imprisoned again, um, rather than the fact that he was acting as a, a counterintelligence agent under the control of the Continental Army. Um, if they had known that he was acting in this way, it's, it's very likely that he would have been um, punished far more severely, possibly hanged. Um, this is also just kind of an interesting fact because it shows at, at this point in the war just how <clears throat> inexperienced uh, the general officers of the Continental Army were in counterintelligence operations. Um, they really had no prior um, experience having to do something like this, and they really had no agents um, that offered to serve them in this capacity. So this was the first time. A few months later, uh, Bruin, while he was in Staten Island, overhears uh, a possible um, loyalist attack upon Patriot Force in New Jersey. Now, he, he manages to travel back to Newark, to warn the American forces, but while he's there, he's arrested under the suspicion of being a Tory, and then he's brought before a judge who um, orders him to to pay a hundred dollar fine. And um, they, although they know that he is acting as a double agent at this time, they know if they were to dismiss his case without paying a fine, and word of this were to get out, his cover as a Tory would be blown. Uh, so Bruin pays the fine and continues on with his missions. Just after that, um, he really begins to hit his stride as an intelligence officer. Uh, he stays off the radar for a couple of years. Um, he's kind of uh, um, serving both sides in, in, a, in various capacities. There, there are passes from people like uh, General Elias Dayton, who is one of the more prominent intelligence officers in the Continental Army. Um, and he shows that he repeatedly traveled between New York City and Newark, um, he also passes from uh, Tench Tillam, and there's also a uh, um, 
pass from uh, the Marquis de Lafayette. He also appears several times in Sir Henry Clinton's account of the war, uh, multiple times serving as a courier. So clearly he was trusted by, by both sides. Um, in January of 1781, uh, when Sir Henry Clinton got word of a mutiny of the Pennsylvania line, he dispatches several em- emissaries to the, the mutineers, um, including Bruin, and uh, hoping that these mutineers might defect to the British. Um, in reality, they only wanted better pay and better housing. Um, two of the emissaries, a known Tory named John Mason, who also um, took was a, a prominent member of the Claudia Smith gang, another person I wrote an article uh, on uh, in the Hudson Valley, and uh, his guide, James Ogden, delivered the instructions um, as they were directed to by Clinton, and the mutineers turn them over and they're hanged. Uh, Bruin actually takes his message directly to General Anthony Wayne and reveals the plot to him um, and makes Wayne aware of Sir Henry Clinton's um, plans. Before he returned to New York City, however, a deserter from the Continental Army managed to tip off the British that that Bruin was acting as a double agent. So when Bruin uh, makes it back to the city, he's once more imprisoned. Although this time uh, it was far worse than his previous stays in prison, he was thrown into what they called the dungeon for about 10 months uh, with no light and very low rations um, until, uh, I guess, one one person described his condition as being reduced to almost but a skeleton and within inches of his life. But in the end, despite uh, his gruesome captivity, um, he was very lucky he wasn't hanged. Do you think, given everything we know, that the term double agent fairly applies to Caleb Bruin? I, I do think it's uh, um, it's fair to describe him as a double agent. Um, I think Henry Knox said it best that although Bruin may have divulged some secrets to the British to maintain his credibility, it was, it was apparent that he did practice the office of a double spy, as he called it, and agreed to compensate him for his service and suffering to the amount of $300. Uh, Dr. McWhorter's testimony also uh, states that he believed without a doubt that, that Bruin was more attached to the Americans to the British, although he caveats this with um, the, uh, the notion that many believed that not only was Bruin more attached to the British, uh, but that he was also profiting from illegal uh, black market trading, um, to which McWhorter also uh, pretty much dispels. Um, but as a whole, I think that the Continental Army and Henry Knox, who is also um, pretty much deciding this based on the testimony of several prominent people in New Jersey, uh, Elias Dayton being one um, and Dr. McWhorter being the other, uh, they all believe that he, in fact, um, served them in both capacities. A lot of people really like to make the American Revolution uh, something easy to understand, something simple. Good versus evil, right versus wrong. Uh, how does Bruin's life complicate that? Well, we, we often think of, uh, of spies during the revolution as these fiercely ideological and, and noble patriots uh, like, like Nathan Hale. Uh, you know, I regret that I have one life to lose for my country or, or Abraham Woodhull. But we rarely think of those who were forced um, into this very dangerous world. Uh, people like Hale understood the consequences of spying um, 
before they began their missions and they still chose to undertake them. But Bruin's choice w- was made for him. Um, he, he really, uh, while he was in prison, you know, he, he could either stay there and suffer or he could, uh, you know, try and manipulate his circumstances to the best of his ability. Uh, he also states that it was this common practice for the British to release prisoners um, under the conditions that they spy for them. Um, this kind of also worked for the Americans. The Americans would release people um, on parole if they would, you know, agree to serve in the, uh, the, the Navy for them. Um, but that would mean that there are probably many others in the same situation as Bruin. And um, there's probably many more stories out there. There, there's still to be discovered about these people um, and how they reacted to their, their adverse conditions. Uh, Bruin serves as a spy also ties back into that concept of fluid loyalism in that they had to constantly, he had to constantly manipulate his allegiance based on the threats he faced. Charles Dewey, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.